0: Um, the reality is we are going to preach a Valentine's Day message because, um, you know, though you may want to think of the greatest lover that you can think of in history, you know, Rudolph Valentino or Don Juan, or if you're Lord of the Rings fans, it'd have to be Aragorn, right? But um, the reality, reality is we all know the greatest lover of all loved us before we loved him, correct? Jesus Christ... Lord and the Father sending the Son. The greatest love of all. Apparently, apparently love's a big deal for God. Um, And apparently, having us live with him for eternity is a big deal to him. Um, In fact, he calls that unity. And um, I want to talk a little bit about unity through diversity. And we're going to kind of contrast it with uniformity. Um, So what does unity look like? Does it look like that we all just look the same, we become clones of him, we um, become uniform people thinking the same, acting the same, talking the same? The answer is yes and no. We're going to talk a little bit about the yes and no. Um, What we find instead of uniformity is unity through Christ we're going to go through a couple of, well, we're going to go through several scriptures talking about that this morning, and we're going to talk about it in, in, as it um, affects a couple areas of our life, our family life, our life with friends, and the life in the church. Now, as many of you know, or some of you know, Vicky and I uh, just got back. We, uh, we celebrated 50 years together while we were in... While we were in uh, while we were suffering for Jesus in Hawaii for a month, um, we went there on a mission trip, and our mission was to uh, spend as much time with each other, eat as much fish as we could, uh, enjoy as much sunshine, swim as many as often as we could, and play as much golf as we could. Um, but um, <laughs> we certainly, rather, though we enjoy that unity, we're certainly not uniform. You know. I grew up in the in the ocean. You know, I grew up in San Diego as did she by the way, but I grew up on the surf. And so I'm literally as comfortable swimming as in the ocean as I am walking on land. And so for my my joy is putting, you know, fins on and snorkel and hitting the reefs and, you know, I don't care how rough it is. I want to go down, I want to see things. I got to swim with some very cool turtles. And by the way, if you've ever seen Finding Nemo, you know, the turtles in Finding Nemo, if you swim with a green turtle, it's exactly the same. I mean, they look over at you and they go like, hey, dude. I mean, it's, it's so true. It's, it's really true. But but though I really love doing that, Vicki, mm, not so much. She always feels like one part of her is always sinking and she can't seem to get it to come up. I'll let you... Figure out which part's sinking. She loves to uh, get up really early and uh, walk, uh, and she wants to walk Ali'i Drive, which is one of the main drives that goes right by the ocean you know, on the Big Island. Yeah, me, I, I walk with her, and I love it. We had fun time doing five miles together, and that whole thing in the sun. But I'd rather be walking amongst the lava rocks. I want to go explore. Um, I want to go cycle, do something crazy, and uh, and that's just not Vicky. And yet we're unified. We both play golf. Um, as her back gets worse, uh, her game's not as what it used to be. And, but she loves just to ride along when, when, when she finally decides hitting the ball's just not that much fun anymore. And she puts up with me and my um, arrogance and thinking that I'm better than I am as I play. Um, I love raw fish. She uh, she wants it cooked really thoroughly through. And I'm sorry if you take a really p- nice piece of sashimi grade ahi tuna and you put it on the grill and cook it all the way through, I mean, you might as well just take up a piece of shoe leather and eat it. It's just not the same thing. Um, I really love poke, which is their form of, you know, I I love the fact I love octopus poke. Um, Vicky wants macaroni salad. So yeah, we're not uniform in any way, shape, or form, and yet um, God has built this incredible unity upon us. We have couples come to us pretty regularly with difficulties, and as I listen to them, what I'm really hearing them say is, if he was just like me, our marriage would really be good. Or if she were just like me and did things like I did, thought the way I did, liked the same things I did, had the same goals I had, everything would just be hunky dory, and we would just be fine. And and the reality is, um, there was a great book written years and years and years ago. Um, called uh, thank, thank God for Your Incompatibilities. And though in com- being incompatible, um, really the definition of that is uh, unable to live together harmoniously, God says something totally different about that. And what he says is that your weakness is her strength and her weakness is your strength. And because of that incompatible <laughs> relationship, it says the two become one. See, God's idea of unity is not uniformity. But let's don't just talk about marriage, because you, as you guys would know, I could spend the rest of the morning and probably next week as well talking about marriage. Let's talk about another area of our family life. How about your kids? How many of you grew up trying to be just like your dad? Now, of course, if your dad was a man of integrity, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, some of you grew up and your dad was a bloodthirsty hunter loved to see things and poke holes in animals you grew up and you weren't too keen on that that really wasn't your thing and to try to be just like dad you always felt like you just didn't measure up and because of that the unity in the relationship possibly with your father or your mother your father your husband said oh you know if you could just cook like my mother, or you could be like my mother, then we would have a good marriage. And so, you know, again, trying to be uniform rather than allowing unity to take place. And certainly, uh, we've all wondered and scratched our heads as we've had children and said, how in the world could two people have multiple kids that are so incredibly different? Anybody agree with that? God blessed us with... um, with four children, one of them is ours by, uh, by blood. The other three, God brought into our life at various stages in their teenage years, and, uh, and they became ours. And our last two kids were actually brother and sister, and they came to live with us in their early teens. And <laughs> they were at each other's throat all the time. And we, we finally gave them a personality, we made them do a personality profile. I don't know if you're ever familiar with the four personality types of, you know, choleric, melancholy, sanguine, and phlegmatic. My daughter is about as choleric as you'll get. She wants to be in charge of everything. She doesn't necessarily want to do everything. She just wants to be in charge of everything. Um, in fact, when we did her testing, she had like zero in form of melancholy, which would be task-oriented. Everything was choleric as far as she was concerned. Her brother, younger brother, and they're only about a year apart, her younger brother uh, is phlegmatic to the max. Phlegmatics um, are like to get along with people. They are what I call those that are passive-aggressive. They get along but really have their own ideas, and they're going to do whatever they want to do anyway, though they uh, will try to get along. And she could never figure out. She was so frustrated with him always because he couldn't do the things she wanted him to do. And then we took the test, and I showed her the results and what the different conditions are for each of these characters. And she looked at me and she said, well, no wonder he can't do those things. See, she wanted absolute uniformity, and she thought that uniformity would provide unity rather than having unity through diversity. Is it possible that we can have unity in families even because of diversity? So there's this wonderful scripture that um, is in the book of Ephesians. Paul's talking to fathers, and he says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then the amplified version kind of likes to clarify that a little bit. What he means by that is don't exacerbate or exasperate exasperate them to the point of resentment with demands that are trivial, unreasonable, humiliating, or abusive, nor by showing favoritism. Oh, my goodness gracious. Let's think back on that as raising kids. If you were just like Johnny, Everything would be perfect. And, of course, then Mike, who's not like Johnny, continues to feel worse and worse and worse because we're showing favoritism. Do not show favoritism or indifference to any of them, but here's what we're supposed to be doing. Bring them up tenderly with loving kindness in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. See, Jesus and his heavenly Father always provide unity. Always provide unity. That's the part we go back to, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. What about friendships? I'm a child of the 60s and 50s, actually, but um, I grew up with a career Navy man, Chief Chabner. And, of course, I went to college during the Vietnam War. And during the Vietnam War and all the protests going on, my dad was one of the guys that had Love It or Leave It as a bumper sticker in the back of his car. (laughs) You don't like it, go somewhere else. And here I am going to Humboldt State University and uh, in the middle, in 1969, when then governor of California, Ronald Reagan, was saying things like, if the students want a bloodbath, let's give it to them. You know, of course, he also said things like, if you've seen one redwood tree, you've seen them all. But um, went on to be a you know, pretty good president, but uh, as a governor, he had some problems during that period of time. And yet, the friends in our church, and I was a believer at the time, the friends in the church were trying to get along with each other during this very tumultuous time in the Vietnam War, some of them being in favor of what we were doing, some of them being very against what we were doing. Churches were having problems trying to stay together and not split. Churches were having problems fellowshipping with other churches who had taken a stance, a political stance against the war. Remember, these are the years of Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon. You know, we're talking about how things are terrible today. I mean, go back and read your history. We've had some tough times in this country. And as we want people to all believe the same thing, (laughs) uniformity versus unity becomes a problem. Um, while we were in Hawaii, we like to go to Living Stones Fellowship, just an incredible fellowship on, on the Big Island. And the guy named Bill Barley has been there for many, many years. We've grown to love his teaching. And he actually brought it very, um, very current to this time we have right now. As Scott spoke about several couple weeks ago about the change in administration. One of his long-term church friends actually said to him, If you support this current administration, we are no longer friends. Seriously? Because we can't agree on issues of the kingdom of this world? I'm going to separate with you as a brother for the kingdom of God? Uniformity versus unity? In the fifth chapter of the book of of, uh, Joshua, uh, there's an interesting story. I'll give you a little background, then we'll read what I think is an incredible scripture. Um... You, as you know, the children of Israel—they've been marching around the desert for 40 years. They're not—they had—they would made some really bad choices, even though God had given them everything, they and delivered them. They made some very bad choices, and bad enough that God said, "This group of people aren't going to enter into the promised land." So you're going to march around long enough that the people who are non-believers will pretty much die. And so they cross the river and they head into the promised land. And what Joshua has now are a group of young men who haven't, you know, they weren't part of that original rebellion, but they also haven't been circumcised. And so God says, I need to form a new covenant. So he says, gather all the men, and all the guys in the room said, ouch, and we're gonna circumcise all the men at once. Here's scripture says, then they rested for several days. I love that one. But while they're resting, because Joshua probably was a man who had been circumcised in the in the, in the in the, in, in the desert, because he was a man of, of faith, walking with Moses. But Joshua's out walking around while these guys are healing up, and he goes up to Jericho, and the Scripture says this in Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of Of him with a sword in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and said, Are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? That's not what he said, really. He says, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. (laughs) At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy. And, bless his heart, Joshua did as he was told. (laughs) Which side was God on? God was on his side. Now, we read the rest of the story. God destroys the city of Jericho. By the way, God does it his way. Not any kind of military tactic any of us would ever come up with. You go read the story. But which side was God on? God was on his side. God has his own agenda And sometimes our agenda matches up with his. Sometimes it doesn't. Have you ever uh, wondered why Jesus chose the 12 that he chose? Think about this Lois Garris uh, was over the house last night, and uh, Dave's down in Arizona uh, enjoying the sunshine down there and cycling some. But um, we were watching a little bit of the Chosen. And so Jesus is choosing his disciples in that wonderful uh, depiction. If you haven't seen The Chosen, go find a copy. It's absolutely amazing. Um, And the first guys he chooses are Andrew and his brother Peter and James and John, sons of Zebedee. They're all fishermen, okay? And, of course, this is kind of cool because he explains to them that he's choosing them as fishermen because they know how to catch And he's turning them into people who will learn how to catch. And he wants them to catch people. And he wants them to catch all kinds of people. He doesn't say catch just this kind of fish. In fact, he says, catch everyone, I'll sort them out. You know, we we make a mistake sometimes of wanting to clean the fish before we catch them. We want to clean people up before we catch them. God doesn't tell us that. He says, go out and catch people. I'll do the cleaning. And so he chooses a bunch of fishermen. Now, these guys are not exactly Bible scholars, okay? They know enough Judaism to get along. They know how to, you know, how to keep Shabbat, but that's about it. But they're crude. They're, in fact, when they show up uh, in the book of Acts, they're surprised because they say they're such unlearned men. They couldn't believe they're talking like they're talking. But he chooses these four guys to begin with. Then he goes and he finds this, or this guy named Philip finds him, and then Philip invites his friend, Nathaniel, And Philip says to Nathaniel, he says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This guy's a studier of the scripture. He knows his Torah. And even though Nathaniel ends up making this kind of racial slur of like, Yeah, can anything good come from Nazareth? He later on, Jesus says of him, he says, An Israelite, this is Nathaniel, Philip's friend. He says, This is an Israelite. In whom there is no deceit. How would you guys like Jesus to look at you and say, Colleen, there's a woman of no deceit? Would that be an awesome thing for someone to lay upon you? And then Nathaniel turns around because he's blown away by the things Jesus has said and what Jesus has seen. And he says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're King of Israel. So he's got four fishermen, he's got two Bible scholars and then he finds Thomas. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap, you know, he's, you know, the doubting Thomas, because, you know, he wants to put his hands in Jesus's, or his fingers in Jesus's hands, and put him aside before he believes he's actually resurrected from the dead. But let's go all the way back to the, to the beginning. Now, The Chosen takes, you know, literary license and does this kind of fictional thing about who Thomas is, which I, I kind of love. It's, it's, it's fun. He believes he's, he kind of portrays him as the wine merchant, and the caterer for the wedding in the Cana gallery. So he's this guy who's he's fact-oriented. He, uh, he believes what he sees. That's it. That's his faith. He believes what he sees. And so, you know, you've got to get things together. You've got to know how much wine there is, got to know how much food there is. And so what happens? They run out of wine. Boy, that's tough with the guy who's very fact-oriented, isn't it? You run out of wine, and Jesus performs this incredible miracle. And and if it were Thomas, he would get to witness this incredible miracle. Now, this is a guy who is, he's all in. When Lazarus dies, he says, let's go to Bethany, we'll, let's die with him. I mean, he, this guy's all in. He also is the guy who wants to ask the questions that nobody else wants to ask. My wife likes to read Philip I think that's why she reads it. Philip asks questions that we're all afraid to ask. And so, what does he say when well, Jesus says, I'm, I'm taken off? And, and um, he's, but Thomas says, I don't know the way. He says, we don't know the way. Church historians think that later on, uh, he went on to uh, minister in India and in China. And uh, I have to believe that this is a man who, who, who experienced what it was to touch the prince in his hands and his side. He was someone who could go and speak to the mystical in India. So now he's got Thomas. He chooses Matthew. He chooses these two diametrically opposed people. Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon the zealot. Matthew, the tax collector, is hated. He's outside of Judaism by now. They've cast him out pretty much because he has sided with Rome. He's a tax collector. Simon the zealot. He's a guy who wants to overthrow Rome militarily. And so now we have this Democrat, you know, who is big government and collects taxes. And we have this Republican who wants to uh, make Israel great again, and he wants to, uh, you know... I know, it's taken a lot of license. What can I say? But But the fact that... That God takes these guys who are not uniform in any way in what they believe, and he pulls them together through his power of unity is an amazing story. And then he chooses Judas Iscariot. <laughs> Come on, really? Judas Iscariot? Now, he's also probably a zealot. He probably also believes it. It's obvious through the story and even through his betrayal that he's looking for an earthly kingdom. He's really fine as long as Jesus is going to set something up and he'll be part of the goodies, he'll be part of the hierarchy and Jesus' new kingdom on this earth. So Jesus sets up all these guys. And, of course, you have everybody else that he chooses. He goes out and finds the prostitutes, goes out and finds the tax collectors, the sinners, he goes out and finds a Roman centurion. Really? Another? A Roman? He even accepts Pharisees like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. What do we make of this diversity? Wouldn't it have been a lot more effective to go out and find a whole group of guys who were already good friends, who already believed everything the same, understood everything the same, and then he made them into this, took this unified group and then just used them? That would have been the way I had done it. Now, how about the day of Pentecost? That's another great one, okay? So we show up on the day of Pentecost and Peter's preaching, and here's who it says he's preaching to. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, members of the NFL, and Arabs. Remember it says up there Cretans? That's members of the NFL. So um, you see the picture, it really covers the whole area up there. Again. Do you think those people who came in were uniform? Do you think they all had the same culture, same language, same beliefs, same politics, same race? What do you think? Or do you think it was an incredibly diverse people who when they heard the gospel, 3,000 get saved the first day? See, God creates his own form of unity through diversity. So is unity then that important? Well, let's take a page out of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's an interesting church. It's a church that is in, as you know, the Grecian area. It is a um, church really affluent, a um, lot of trade, uh, full of different religions. Unfortunately, uh, they did a lot of temple prostitution. In fact, if you were called a Corinthian woman, that was actually a, a derogatory term, meaning you were a loose woman. Um, but it also included, by the way, a politician, Erastus, who is the treasurer of the city of Corinth. actually becomes part of the church there. Gentiles, slave, free, men, women, rich, poor, Jews, all part of this church in Corinth. And Paul plants the church, stays there 18 months, gets them on board, kind of gets them really kind of squared away, and he takes off. Four years later, he starts hearing that they've got a mess going on. They have kind of devolved back to doing things they used to do. And you have to ask yourself, why, in fact, would they be doing this? I mean, they were doing things like they inc- started including the, the kind of infidelity and the kind of sexual uh, perversions that, that was in their city. They didn't try to incorporate it or just wink at it in their church. They, uh, the rich and the poor were at odds such that the rich were gorging themselves at their love feasts, the communion times, and leaving before the poor would even show up and have nothing to eat. They were, they were starting to actually sue each other in courts, take them brothers and sisters before a court of Rome. It just, it, was, it really gotten off. But why did it get off? That's the question. How did they get that way in four years? Well, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, which is probably actually a second letter Paul had written, but if you read that book, he begins with a couple of very interesting points. And the first one is this. He wants to remind them who they are in Christ Jesus and the place the gospel should play in their lives. And he describes their divisiveness and their division as the root of all their sin. They seem to have taken up faction camps of uniformity rather than focusing on maintaining the unity of Spirit in the bond of peace, as he's later to tell the Ephesians. And here's what he says in first chapter, first Corinthians. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus to be revealed he will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship. Listen to this. Who has called you into fellowship, you diverse group, with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to talk a little bit about that unity of the son and the father. Uh, Because he he starts out by kind of giving them an attaboy. Then he says, but I appeal to you. Brothers and sisters, the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, Apollos. Another, Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? was Christ crucified, or Paul crucified for you, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is very clear with him. Unity in the face of diversity is possible only as we recognize our position in Jesus. Absolute submission to him and focus on his kingdom. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Sounds a lot like what Paul had heard from Jesus. Um, When Jesus meets with his disciples, remember, fast forward kind of to the the Lord's the Last Supper, right before they go to the garden. Jesus gives them two prime things to focus on as he leaves them. Two prime things. Love for each other, unity with each other, and with God. So very familiar scripture in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. By the way, the contrast to that is true too. A lack of love for each other will confuse the world and they will have no clue who Jesus is or that you belong to him. Just true. And then he, then he concludes his time with them with a prayer. And he's talking to his father and he says this. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about you and me. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you're in me, and I'm in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So why are we being one? Why is unity so important to God? So the world knows the Father sent the Son. Without unity, the world becomes confused about who Jesus is. We talked about that about marriage here a little while back when I spoke last time, that that's what our marriages do. It helps the world understand the Father and the Son. With a bad marriage, we confuse the world about who the Father and the Son are. So he says the same thing here. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are. I am them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now remember who he's talking to. 12, well, now he's loving. One of them's taken off already. Judas has taken off. So the, less, the other 11 guys that he has chosen that we've just described are about as diverse as you will ever find 11 guys. They would not be the kind of guys that would normally be friends. You know, I have some great friends in this church, like this dude right here, Mr. Kerriglew that we would not even probably know each other without jesus we walk in different circles of life but god's put us together as unity this guy is closer to me than my physical brother was because of the unity of the spirit that god creates so these guys were very different i, I I love it when they take off and they start walking with Jesus. And they're trying to figure out what to carry with them because they've never been on the kind of trip, you know. And so, you know, Peter's probably carrying a hammy den backpack from uh, his brother Andrew, you know. Uh, Matthew, Levi, you know, being wealthy, he's probably got something from REI, you know, or maybe LL Bean, looking cool, you know. Um, probably Simon the Zealot's still got his sword on, you know, because after all, you remember, Jesus said, do you have swords? Yeah, we have two swords. We know Peter had one. You know, Simon the Zealot probably had the other one. Um, but seriously, you know, they, they came in with their own baggage. Um, they had different social political ideas that, you know, the Zealot and, 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 and Matthew probably had a hard time with what they had believed, and, and yet Jesus made them one. Let's get back to Corinth, though. So here's God's definition of spiritual maturity. It's called unity. Here's man's counterfeit. It's called uniformity. We all got to look the same. We all got to be the same. And that somehow we think mimics unity. So I think this is best depicted for me. (laughs) This is sad. Um, If you go to West L.A., and amongst the Hasidic community in West L.A., Hasidic Jews, you will find (laughs) those that go to synagogue will all dress exactly the same, identical, same, black coats, same, they just look, they look like clones walking down the street. In fact, you can tell which rabbi they follow by the hat they wear. The different headdresses depict the different rabbi they follow, which I guess would be okay, except that they do that because one synagogue will not fellowship with the other because the two rabbis disagree on some minor point of scripture. See, that's uniformity. But that's not unity. And we see a little bit of that in Christianity, too. Everybody wanting to be the same. Now, the problem they had in Corinth was this. Um, it was all about those teaching styles. This is crazy. And by the way, this happens today. Okay? One's after Apollos. Who was Apollos? Okay. Apollos was this, you know, he was from Alexandria, near Egypt. Uh, you remember the big library they had in Alexandria? So he, was, he probably was really, really schooled. Apparently, a very good order. Probably, when you sat under Apollos, it was kind of like being under Robin Maxim. You know, you, you felt like you were going to a university class. <laughs> and that's, that's the kind of teaching you got. You know, and then you had people like Cephas, which probably was Peter. We don't know for sure, but probably Peter. And Peter had come from this very Jewish perspective. And so he. Probably was like the Calvary teacher. You know, he, he taught right, you know, verse after verse after verse. That's what Jews do. They go from one end of the scripture to the other, and they do it yearly. So, you know, maybe, maybe he was focusing really on just, just that written word. And then you have Paul. <laughs> Paul's like our pastor, Scott. He's just willing to take anybody and tell them who Jesus is and uh, he was out there amongst the Gentiles, people that had no clue who Jesus was, and he introduces them to who Jesus is. And then, unfortunately, there's a group of people, and we have them today, who said, well, I don't need to follow anybody, I follow Christ, as if that's somehow, what they're saying is, I don't really like authority, so I'm my own authority, and I'll just follow Christ. But regardless of what these people did, or they taught differently, and because they taught differently, it was kind of like this, badge of honor you wore. I, I used to love it. We went to, Vic and I went to Church on the Way with Jack Hayford for two years, sat under his ministry, and he, if you don't know who he is, he's probably one of the better teachers we've ever seen in our century. Um, people, were, people were snobby in L.A. because they liked the idea they went to Church on the Way. It sounded cool, you know. Church, I go to Church on the Way. And in fact, it was so funny, um, there was a whole group of pastors who came out being discipled by Jack Hayford, but they thought that the way to be like Jack Hayford was to look like Jack Hayford. And you saw them, and they'd hike up their pants just like Jack Hayford. They would do things just like, as if that uniformity somehow was, well, there was power there. But Jack would stop the church, and he'd say, you know, if you guys really want to, if you really want to follow Jesus, he says, forgive this church in the way, tell them, you, tell them you, you go to the first four square church of Van Nuys, California, the one that was started by a woman named Amy Simons McPherson. If you're proud to do that, he says, then you're following Jesus. Because what he's saying is, drop the pretense. Quit trying to act out and go back to Jesus, the reason that we all are here. What can we conclude from all of this? Unity amongst God's people is an expected byproduct of the cross. Let me say that again. This is 1 Corinthians by the way. Remember the power the cross is the power of God. The gospel which is the cross is the power of God unto salvation. Unity amongst God's people is an ex- expected byproduct of the cross and a mark of maturity. I begin to put my preferences and my opinions subject to the gospel which is this unity. Unity is greater than uniformity. Unity is meant to take all of us from diverse backgrounds with diverse giftings and blend us together for the gospel. Unity is more gospel-oriented and more in line with love. And just to make sure we're balanced in our teaching here, unity is not absolute tolerance to various truths. We're not talking about all, you know, you know we're all spokes of a wheel, all go to one spot. That's not, that's not unity. We all focus on Christ. We focus on Jesus because there are some matters of faith that we all believe. We believe that he is the ransom for our sins and only through his redemptive blood are we saved. That is not something that's up for, you know, negotiation. We are saved by grace. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Grace is saving. And we believe that once that takes place in our lives, you should start seeing a difference in people. We should start looking different than the world, okay? Those things are things that we all agree on. We don't need to argue over. Probably wouldn't have anybody in the body of Christ here that would disagree with that. But then there's a whole lot of other stuff. And some of it's based upon the baggage you have. Some of it's based upon what you've previously been taught. Some of it's based upon... Um, the fact that you're growing from glory to glory to glory, so you're not maybe at the level of maturity as your brother or sister in Christ yet. And Paul talks about that in the Scripture, and he he, he points out a couple of areas. One was this whole deal about meat sacrifice to idols, and the other one was he starts talking about ceremonial rites, holy days, even circumcision. The people were using these within the church of Christ. They were using these as separators, points of division and not allowing unity to take place. Now, there's other examples in our current time. Do you know that there's actually churches that divide over how you do communion with the type of cup you use? I'm sure they are not real keen on these new ones we do that, you know, have the that half of the older people can't open. The ones you try to pull the top off of, you get the whole thing. You end up with the wine before you get the bread. And, you know, and you can't do that. You know. So, uh, but the scripture says Jesus took the cup and blessed it so people, oh, got to be a one-cup church. And I'm, I'm not kidding on this one. You all, you all drink from the one cup. If you're not, you're not doing communion. How about taking of offerings? You know, some churches, you got to pass that plate, you know, because that's where all you've set yourselves. No, some put it in the back of it. We have churches that actually divide over these super things. Drinking of alcohol, whether it should be or shouldn't, even though Jesus, you know, he's, he's performing a miracle at Cana. we argue about it. Um, Types of worship has become a big deal nowadays. You know, this worship's holy, this worship's not holy, and because of that, now now we can have different opinions of this, that's that's okay, but because we don't believe this is holy enough, we will not fellowship with you. Wow, are we going to surprise when we get to heaven and they're there. Used to be a joke that we used to tell about a church that I used to attend that sings only a cappella. And when you get to heaven, they were behind a very tall wall. And he said, and so the guy gets to heaven and he sees, he hears this non instrumental music going on, four part harmony, going on behind the other wall. Who's that? Well, that's the blank, blank church. They wouldn't be happy if they thought somebody else was up here. So I had to put them behind a wall. How about uh, whether your kids can watch Harry Potter movies or not? Man, I've had people just quit talking to friends in the church because of that. How about yoga? You know, whether it's spiritual or not. You know. Now, I, I, you know, I, can, I can understand some of that. What I probably all agree on is whether you were, should wear yoga pants in public, especially men. Okay, that I think we probably could do. And then, you know, we have this whole thing with, with political thoughts, too, on whether we should or shouldn't. Now, again, we have this wonderful scripture that Paul has in uh, Romans 14 accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about whether you think they're right or wrong or whether they think they're right or wrong Um, in other words as you're growing in your Christian maturity you, I don't know about you but as I've read the scripture I've changed some of the things that I believe because frankly the Holy Spirit reveals new things in the scriptures like oh I didn't see that before oh man I didn't notice that but you're going to disfellowship me or not fellowship with me because I haven't believed that yet? I don't get there yet? You're going to force me to believe something I don't believe yet? Paul, by the way, makes a huge argument about that being really a bad idea. Don't argue about disputed matters. You can discuss them, but don't allow it to cause division. God is sovereign. And we know how the story concludes. Now, what takes place between the end and now? Okay? We've got a lot of things to still discuss, but I love this line. You may or may not want to put it on your mirror in your bathroom. The longer it takes people to figure out where we stand in politics, in all likelihood, the more faithfully we are preaching Jesus. That's kind of what my life's about. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God is eternal. I'm going there. By the way, so are you. But I'm going to live like I'm going there. Okay. That means that there are things happening in this world today that are really disappointing, really discouraging. Kind of like not yet under Nero, but we're starting to go there. Okay. When Paul talked about you know, being obedient to the government, we've got to remember Nero was in charge. That, just, that, that blows my mind. Still have to kind of work that out. I'm not sure I'm there yet. But we live in a wicked world. There's no doubt about it. But I am not a citizen Of that world, yeah, I'm a citizen, I'm an American citizen. I vote, I do all that kind of stuff, but I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, and those are the things that drive my life. And anything that prevents me from sharing that with my neighbor, I am gonna cast aside as as something temporal. I don't need to waste my time with. I don't need to clean the fish before I catch them. I just need to act as if I'm part of God's kingdom. I'll conclude with this. There really is a conclusion, yeah. I'll conclude with this. <clears throat> As we become older in the Lord, we sometimes think that our maturity, um, it, that our opinions are actually um, equal with maturity. That's not true. Opinions don't equal maturity. In um, fact, opinions a lot of times are opportunities for division instead. But true wisdom and maturity is being able to be a dispensers of grace. That's who we. That's who we are. And this scripture out of uh, James, this is one that we should be putting, probably taped to our mirror in our bathroom to remind ourselves. The wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving. It's gentle at all times. It's willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. Always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Amen. Amen. So whether that means that this unity um, needs to be rekindled in your marriage, whether it means this unity needs to be kindled in your relationship with your children, with your friends, with the body of Christ, allow his guidance to allow you to speak with true wisdom as described by our brother James. I'd like to conclude uh, in prayer with this. Uh, This was part of a devotional I had a couple days ago, and it just, it really grabbed a hold of me. It's out of Psalm 51, which we are very familiar with, Creating Me a Clean Heart. But this is how the writer wrote it. She said, if you're anything like me, you live with the sensitivity that the attitudes of the world can start to rub off on your heart and have a negative impact on your spirit. Once in a while, we just need to ask the Holy Spirit to take his pressure washer of grace and blast off the gunk. I love David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. In particular, I've always been attracted to the 10th verse where he writes, Create in me a pure heart. O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. What a great prayer for us all to pray. God, I don't want any of this world's residue to build up on my spirit. I want to live freely and love completely. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me shine. Amen. Find a piece of paper while, we're, while you're breaking up or as you're heading home, as you're talking in the car, and say, okay, I loved what I heard, some of which I loved what I heard, and we're going to do something different in our family. We're going to do something different in this friendships we have. We're going to do something different in the relationship we have in the church. We're going to do something different as we focus on the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world. Write it down. Pray over it. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father God. Thank you for being holy, Father God. (laughs) Thank you, Father, for calling us to be holy. Mind-blower. Thank you for taking us as diverse people, Father God, and making us into a body of Christ. (laughs) Father, identify for us in our minds the things where we have allowed the world to begin to corrupt our thinking, where we somehow believe that the things of this world are so important that we need to invest all of our time, energy, thinking, and passions about and lose sight (laughs) of the mission you've called us to which is to preach the good word, to live the good word, to be the good word of Jesus Christ, full of grace, dispensers of grace, dispensers of reconciliation. We thank you for that, Lord. Father, I pray your blessing on this people, Father God, as they desire to do that. And I thank you, Lord, that you are enablers. You've told us, Lord, if any man asks for wisdom, you will give without reproach. I don't believe you're given wisdom that's man's wisdom. You're given your wisdom. And that wisdom, we've just read about in the book of James. So thank you for that. Give you praise. In Jesus' name.